Just as a, a way into Corinthians, what we'll find as we study this letter is that uh, God will, week by week, in a sense, embrace us as a church under His Word, and He will, he will say, look, are, are, we, are we genuine? Are we mature as a church? Are we focusing and emphasizing on the right things and the right uh, stuff? It's very, very important that we don't listen to this letter as it were speaking to another church, to, to this church. As elders, um, we are engaging in a process, partly because it's the way that I'm wired as the minister, um, to look at the next 10 years in Chalmers' life as a church. I've been here for 10 years. We're looking at the next 10 years. There's a scary bit at the end of the vision we're looking at which says succession of minister. That's me. And it's right that you think of that down the, the track, but it's very important that when we are, are looking at vision and strategy, which is a good thing and a commended thing in Scripture, that we don't overdo it or overplay it or get it wrong. As soon as we start to do stuff so that we are impressive, then we start to go wrong. So that's the backdrop behind uh, Corinthians. I think two, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, if they put anyone in the spotlight, it's the preacher or the church uh, leader. I think that we'll get onto some ground this morning, like uh, they'll ask you questions, you know, who are, who are your favorite personality preachers? I think in truth, the risk is more with us wanting to be these people. Anyway, that's the flavor of Corinthians. Let's read from chapter 1, verse 10, through to chapter 2, verse 5, which gives us a little bit of intersect in what Roger looked at last week. I appeal to you, brothers or brothers and sisters, is probably a better translation, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, at which point everyone in the meeting must have looked at Chloe, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, this is what is going on in the church, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, Paul asks? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness or folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Now, our focus this morning is uh, strictly from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5. We got about halfway through that in service 1, and I suspect we'll not do any better this time. Uh, just to get back into the flavor of Corinth. It, it was a rich, kind of cosmopolitan city in the ancient world, a center for learning and commerce and business. It mattered who you were, your connections, that kind of city, that kind of environment. It had a lot of sophisticated people in it, uh, impressive city. Um, here's a description of Edinburgh from the must-visit travel section of a prominent weekend newspaper last weekend. Quote, From the medieval tenements, venals and wines of the old town, to the elegance and grace of the new town, Edinburgh thoroughly deserves its reputation as one of the most beautiful and fascinating cities in the world. Built on a human scale and easily navigated, Edinburgh readily gives up its secrets but as much more to offer the visitor than just history in stone. It is a thoroughly cosmopolitan city with Michelin-starred restaurants, a thriving cafe culture. We're right in the middle of it here. Vibrant and varied nightlife, academic excellence, great shopping, and as strong a contemporary arts scene as anywhere in the world. 
Of course, you cannot think of Edinburgh without thinking of the International Festival and Fringe, but it's not just a summer city. As the days shorten, it lights up for Christmas and Hogmanay, but with festivals from film to jazz to food and all sorts happening every month, there is no off-season in this cosmopolitan hub. That's Edinburgh. And if you're here for the bank holiday weekend, I hope you're enjoying it. It's a wonderful city to live in, and let's not do the kind of Christian thing of knocking it. It's a great city. Corinth would have been a great city to live in. And there are connections, not because, I mean, it seems an odd thing to say that Edinburgh is like Corinth, but the pulse and vibe and, and vibrancy of cities in some ways is, is timeless. It's where uh, excellence kind of clusters. Now, the church in Corinth that Paul writes to in this cosmopolitan city, he loved. He'd been there 18 months, and there's much that he is thankful for. But it's, it's kind of gone wrong. And, and the word that you, you might use to describe let me tell you, let me just go straight to the application, not Corinth Chammers. Helpfully, it begins with C. Do you know every church in Edinburgh begins with C, just about? If you think about it, don't think about that. <laughs> Apart from Redeemer. <laughs> Somebody wrote to me recently and said, what you're doing in Chalmers is really impressive. We're talking about training, I think. It's impressive. And, and, and I've written down here, the best word to describe the church in Corinth would be impressive. Impressive. Now, don't hear anything I'm going to say or what Paul is going to say in Corinthians as don't do things well. He's not saying that. He's saying, look, be cautious when people say that it's impressive. If they say that to you, say, well, what do you mean by that? I, I, where this letter is going, it's going to get us to think, look, how do we assess things? How do we view things? How do we think as a church? Because the air and the atmosphere we breathe, and you guys, many of you work in or study in every day of the week, is worldly assessments of what is good, what makes good oratory, good leadership, what's the kind of message that's going to change people's hearts. One of the deep-seated problems in the church in Corinth was a self-centered culture among its members, among its leaders. What I want, what people think of me, and here's the deal, which preacher I like most. Now, that's the issue in the forefront of Paul's mind in these early chapters of Corinthians. Just read in with me from chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And the reason we're on this again is a number of you have asked questions about this this week, and I want to respond to them. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter were prominent preachers of the day. And the people who say they follow Christ here, well, I think that's just super piety. I'm not sure they, they really are super spiritual. Now, whether it's Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, Peter, people had their favorite preacher in Corinth. Now, not because the doctrine 
or the theology of these preachers differed. It didn't. They all preached the same gospel. It was about their style, their personality, their status. And their sermons were the most popular podcasts of the day. Now, Rog made this point well last week, and I want to underscore it a million times. Podcasts are not evil. I listen to Alistair Begg every week, for example. It's good for my own soul, and it's good for my sermons. So people will find somebody that really helps them out. That's good to do. It's good to do. The equivalents of uh, Paul and uh, Apollos and Cephas in the church today might be Tim Keller, John Pripel, Alistair Begg, Kevin DeYoung, whoever they are. It's not wrong to listen to preachers that we like to listen to or that we can kind of get their preaching. It's not long to listen to them to help us grow as Christians or grow as preachers, but it's wrong to listen to them for the wrong reasons. Let me explain by bringing this much closer to home into Chalmers Church. I think that's what Paul really has in mind. Now, in the normal day-to-day life of a local church, we, who, who we have our favorites. Who, who are your favorites? Roger, Johnny, Sam, or me? That's a pretty straight question. Thank the Lord we're from this country and aren't going to answer. <laughs> Which preacher do I like best? Now, I think there are answers to these questions, and that exposes an issue here. Or... Um, from the wider pool that we have, Robert, Neil, Richard, Alex, Callum, Scott, Joey, and Davy James. I mean, it's great. You've got all these folks who can preach. And then Chuck comes along. He's going to preach on Saturday. God willing, up here. That makes me think, well, what, 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 what should we do with all these preachers? A lot of churches out there don't have preachers. Now, isn't it wonderful we have all these people? So who's your favorite Now, let me come at that a different way. What do you talk about on the way home, if you talk about church, that is? I think sometimes we ministers think that's all you talk about. Do you talk about the preacher or Jesus? Or do you talk about the sermon with all the bits that go in a sermon? Or do you talk about the gospel truth the sermon focused on? Now, it's subtle, it's powerful, it comes naturally to us, and, and God's mode of delivery of truth is to get everybody together once a week in a room like this under preaching. That's how he works. But we're hardwired because of the atmosphere we breathe to think about the quality of delivery, the quality of illustrations, the connection, the engagement, the humor. And less about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that's how we are, but it's a danger in all of our hearts. And it matters to me much more than it should what you think of me. Which is why I often go home to Sally at lunchtime and say, sometimes I, I tell you what, I sometimes say, was it good? <laughs> was it good? I'm not tell you what she says by way of an answer. <laughs> No, dear. 
Now, let me pause there again and ask some important questions. This is a question that one of you has asked this week. Does, it, does this mean that it doesn't matter who preaches in a church? That's a good question. I mean, if all that matters is Christ is preached, does it matter who preaches here on a Sunday? And is it wrong to, to critique preaching? I mean, is it wrong to be critical of preaching that is boring or unclear, but is faithful to the gospel? There's a, there's a good question. Now, why is it that some of us preach more often than others? Well, we might say, well, we're paid to do it. But the answer, you're not going to find that answer in the Bible. The answer you're going to find in the Bible, why some of us preach more than others, is that those of us who are full-time elders or shepherds need to preach the most precisely because we are the full-time elders or shepherds. It is the elders who shepherd a congregation through preaching and caring for them. Elders, as shepherds, should smell like sheep. What do I mean by that? They spend their time with sheep, and therefore they should smell like them. You're the sheep. I'm a sheep. Elders are shepherds who smell like sheep, who protect the sheep because they know the dangers they are in, and who track them down when they stray who should set an example to the flock, the congregation, the sheep in their lives, and who pray for them. It is to them, the shepherds, the full-time shepherds, that the responsibility to preach is given. It is them who should be preaching regularly. And if they are not, if the shepherds are not preaching regularly, you need to do a Chloe on them. Tell the elders there's something wrong. Or let me come at it the other way around. If the people preaching to you regularly are not the shepherds, i.e. they do not smell like sheep, if they are disconnected from your lives, then you need to say something. And so for sure, listen to your podcasts as I do. But do not listen to your podcasts if it means you do not listen to your pastor teacher on a Sunday in the church where you belong. Do not listen to your pastor teacher on a Sunday in the church you belong because they are the most eloquent because bar four people in the world, that's not true. I mean, there are a handful of people in the world who have ministries that thousands of people listen to around the world. Listen to them. But do not neglect to listen live to your pastor teacher in the local church where you belong, sitting beside your fellow forgiven sinners as part of a local community of faith, for that is what grows you as a Christian. Now, I think that's the right way to approach this so that we don't throw babies out with bathwater. Got to be part of a local church. The preaching you hear in a local church 
is different from what you hear on your podcast. But it doesn't mean to say the podcasts are unhelpful. So what about crit criticizing preachers? If the people standing up here are not smelling like sheep, then you need to moan. You're going to know. How are you going to know? Because they will avoid saying difficult things from God's Word, because if they're worth their salt, they will have sat with you and said difficult things from God's Word, and so they're not afraid of saying them from up here. Sometimes I think people who, who don't know their congregations and preach, people think, well, they're going to be the ones who do say the difficult things. The opposite's the case. Or when they say something that touches your heart, they don't look at you when they say it, but you know they know when they say it that they're thinking of you. That's just obvious. If that's not happening, there's something wrong. What about uh, critiquing preachers? Uh, well, we do it all the time internally in terms of uh, every Tuesday we have a chart now where we disclose who preached the longest. It's not always not me. This week I will win because I'm preaching all the sermons today. And it, it matters to us. You, you feed that back. Sermons can be too long and you bring your friends along. It matters. So we listen and we try and change it. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? That's a good... You've got to be clear. You've got to be strong. You've got to be well thought through. It's got to be structured and logical. That's a good thing to do. If you can't speak because you've not got the gift of the gab, don't do it. Stop preaching. You're boring. That's okay. What should you be critical of? A non-responsive preaching team who do not listen. You should be critical of a lack of godliness in the life of the preacher. Now, that's a big emphasis in 1 and 2 Corinthians. The... the, the the, the personality preacher has a personality that is not godly. <laughs> Again, it's an, it's an authentic thing. and I, What you're looking for in a preacher is, is someone who is who, not who's godly as much as just conscious that they're not godly. A lack of godliness should be critiqued, and so should a lack of love. A lack of love. One of the big issues in Corinth was a lack of love. And you're right to question preachers when these things are absent. And if you do spot and discern these things, you need to you need to be a Chloe. I have, a, I have a, a person in London who listens to the preaching at Chalmers. I meet them. I met them this week when I was in London. And they will give me an accurate sense of how they think things are spiritually in the life of Chalmers and in the life of the preachers. It's good to do that. But the people who will do it better and best are you. Now, 
so, so that's what's going, going on here. Hopefully that clears up some questions that you, you have. It, 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 it does matter who preaches, but not in the way that the Corinthian church had kind of worked that out. Now, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul shifts tack slightly to the content of authentic preaching. And we'll just get into this and, and halfway through it, I think. For the word of the cross, uh, the NIV has the message of the cross, is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what's your strategy in evangelism? Many of you are students. What's the UCCS strategy in evangelism? to pour a massive amount of effort into producing four gospel books called Uncover, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I say to you guys on campuses all over the country, go and read these words with people. What's the success rate? Tiny. Tiny. When you have a mission, and at the heart of that mission is the preaching of the cross, What's the success rate? Tiny. We fill this place at Christmas. They're great services. We hand out hundreds of books. How many of these little books on the cross do you think are read? Well, not many. I think it's good that we don't know. Surely there is a more effective strategy, a more powerful message than telling people about Jesus' death on a cross. Now that question comes home and hits hard to us as preachers and to you as a congregation at a point when there is little fruitfulness. If God is working in revival and renewal in a country and everyone is responding in their droves to the message of the cross, you're not going to change it, are you? But when you live in a secular time in a cosmopolitan city where all that we are and all that we stand for increasingly is less and less PC and acceptable, the one thing that sounds like complete foolishness, and we'll get to that in a minute, where you're going to change that message. And the Corinthians had moved on from the early days of Paul's preaching where his focus had been unashamedly on the cross, chapter 1, verse 17, he was adamant about the centrality of the cross in his preaching, and they had moved on from what they regarded as an unimpressive message, the cross, and a provocative message, a call to repentance, risks rejection, and in the intellectual, sophisticated world of Corinth, it was just too basic, too naive, not sophisticated or impressive enough. And in the church at Corinth, I suspect they, they would be orthodox, i.e. they wouldn't deny any of these truths, but they would keep quiet about the cross, repentance, salvation, Jesus bearing judgment, all that stuff and presented Christianity as a form of the wisdom teaching that was so popular in Corinth in the Greek world. Now, wisdom is a dominant theme in Paul's letter. Chapter 2, the word is used 14 times. Wisdom means some kind of intellectually sophisticated way of talking about life and its meaning, subtle philosophical speculation, impressive arguments, the quality of the argument, the quality of the oratory, 
And uh, as part of our prep for this, we've listened around to some sermons in churches where this is overt, where there's just no gospel. And if I'm really honest, it, it sounds pretty impressive, profound. So a line like, Jesus did more than literally rise from the dead. What does that mean? Or, or the deep things of God. What does that mean? Or a higher insight into the cross. Sounds awfully impressive. Now, in the evangelical church world that we are in, what is the equivalent of that? It's just a message, sermons, preaching, that just downplays the simplicity of the cross. Christ died for our sins and was raised again. It downplays the call to repent, to humility before Christ. It downplays the need to come to clear faith in Jesus to be part of the community of faith and gives the suggestion, perhaps, that being part of the community is what gives you faith. It's not true. And when the, the clarity on the cross goes, the clarity on much else that goes with it, like cross-shaped living in our life goes, and it becomes a kind of message that is more acceptable, perhaps more sophisticated. And it's sometimes that it's most subtle. It's not that things are said that are untrue. It's just that they're not said at all. Now, in response to that, what Paul does is sets before us, and we'll get to the first of these today, the next two, God willing, next week, God uses an unimpressive message to save unimpressive people from unimpressive preachers. Now, stand back from that. An unimpressive message to save unimpressive people from unimpressive preachers. Why on earth does God do it that way? Why does God center his whole gospel on a cross, which is completely crazy, as a symbol of what changes the world? Why does God give to us in this room, many of us are Christians, the glorious inheritance of the Son of God? Why doesn't he give it to impressive people? Why does he use ordinary punters to preach this message in ordinary churches, why won't he have a powerful message to change powerful people through powerful preachers? Because what God does is takes all the ways and wisdom of the world and turns it on its head. Everything is topsy-turvy in the church. The cross is the message. 
The people are ordinary, and the preachers are quite dull often. We've got to hold on to that truth. Now, let me just caveat that. It doesn't mean to say that you've got to try to be boring or preach too long or use funny language. It doesn't mean to say that church needs to be non-engaged and the music doesn't need to be excellent. All of that is great and important. But if we become a church where our reputation is, what a wonderful sermon you'll get there. So engaged with life and my life. And there's a right and a wrong way to that. You should see some of the people in that church who have been converted. And what a wonderful preacher they have. Then something's gone wrong. Really wrong. An unimpressive message, uh, the cross. Now, many of us are convinced that the cross is the power of God for salvation, But turn back and think about it. Think about the whole of Christianity based on a man dying on a Roman cross. That is foolishness. Foolishness. It is folly. It is absurd to the world, absurd in our society to think that that kind of uh, extreme weakness is intended with extraordinary power. It doesn't make any sense unless you're a Christian. Why is it like that? Why is it that message? Paul writes, just look there, verse 19, it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God promised that he would show up the world's wisdom for what it really is and what it's achieved. Let's read on verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Note what comes next, the heart of his argument. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that is through its worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. If you go into a bookshop and look for the religious section, it's called Mind, Body, and Spirit. I had a go at that in, in London this week in Waterson's, and there's some great books in there. I mean, the Bible's in there, and there's some lots, of, lots of interesting books in there. But most of the books in there do not have the power to save, but they are impressive to read. You've got to be careful. I was taken for, for lunch this week in a fancy London club. Not sure if that's a good idea or not, but it was very smart. don't know what they thought I was doing there. And in one of the fancy lounges, they had, they had volumes of who's who from every year. That's what you have in these clubs. And I, I had to look at it. No, I didn't look for my name. <laughs> I just looked for the names of all the preachers that I knew who had influenced so many people's lives. And not a single one was there. Not a single one was there. But you wouldn't expect them to be. They're not in the who's who. And you're not in the who's who, and I'm not in the who's who. But that's all right. If you want wisdom, go to the cross. What's really foolish in God's assessment is crossless Christianity. It achieves nothing. If you want power, go to the cross. What is powerless is crossless Christianity. It is in the message of the cross that God's wisdom and power is found. That is how people are converted and in no other way. 
And so the test of mature Christianity is that the cross is preached, that we are continually being pointed to Jesus' death on the cross. And if you are not hearing that, then you might be hearing something that sounds awfully powerful and impressive, but it's not God's wisdom. It will not change your life. It will not make you safe. So we must never sideline the cross, however tempting it is. Now, I don't think that renewal or a pouring out of God's Spirit so that lots and lots and lots of people respond to the gospel and that you guys run missions We have carol services, and there's a huge response. And that can happen if God just pours out His Spirit. I'm not sure. I don't think personally that will happen in my lifetime. I think we've got a lot of bottoming out to do. And that period of bottoming out is when God needs His church not to abandon its message. That's the time you've got to hold firm to the message. And one day, God willing, we'll come into church, or you'll do a mission, and the response will be, of a whole different order, because God's Spirit moves. Jews demand signs, Greek seeks wisdom. Verse 22, if you can just prove to me, give me a sign, or give me the cross plus something else, then I'll believe. Some people want wisdom, a message that makes sense to them, that is intellectually credible, that is sophisticated, and so we keep quiet about the cross. Paul's response, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God uses an unimpressive message to change the world. God uses an unimpressive message to change your life and mine. So let's never abandon it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this letter that just impresses on us what is authentic and real. And we pray that we will hold fast to this unimpressive message that is the cross that saves unimpressive people like us through unimpressive preachers. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church as we study this letter to be mature Christians, not taken in by worldly stuff, but equally not out of it or naive or inarticulate. Help us to do things well, but for the right reasons. And thank you that in your providence, you bring us now to the Lord's table where we remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.